Well, almost every year on this same Sunday, or a Sunday later if there's a snowstorm, uh, this same Sunday in January, I preach roughly the same sermon. If you've been around here for any number of years, you notice that. But that's part of celebrating the church year. You, you know, you preach, if you don't preach the same sermon 10 or 12 times a year, you're preaching thematically equivalent sermons. Ascension Sunday, Christ the King, the baptism of Jesus. That's what we're celebrating today, the baptism of Jesus. Now, it's a topic which I love for many reasons. For one, is it's the type of thing which we, we really don't know how to process it. It's, it's a strange event. It's unusual. Even John, as you saw in our text, was like, what's happening here? Right? It's an event which is recorded in all four Gospels, which puts it in very rare company. Right? Outside of the events of Jesus' Passion Week, there's a small list of things that are in all four Gospels. This is one of them. It's also, it turns out, dense. Like it is, It's an extraordinarily rich event. You could unpack a lot of redemptive history from it. So there's a lot of reasons to, to spend time on it. It's, it's much more important than it appears initially. But among other things, it explains at the head of the year that word that I use a lot, the word eschatological. Like if you were to, to ask, why is he always using that word? Part of the answer is, go listen to the Sermon on the Baptism of Jesus. We'll see it here. And this is the, this is the onset of Jesus' public ministry. So with that, this text, in the past I've preached on this text and I've had nine points in the sermon. But today we have two, just two. I just want to look at the sermon John preaches and then the actual baptism of Jesus. The sermon and the baptism. So first the sermon. So this is Matthew chapter 3. You have John the Baptist, this strange prophetic figure. right? He's the last and greatest of the Old Testament saints. He's preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And he preaches a message of like radical reorientation. Repent. That's the first word out of his mouth. Right? It's been said, John has one sermon. John the Baptist has one sermon. He preaches it every week. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So his opening salvo is a word about the end. Like repentance, a turn, a conversion is required because the kingdom of the Messiah, long, you know, long promised in Israel's prophets, is, is at hand. It has now arrived. The kingdom, notice he calls it the kingdom of heaven, is at hand. This is the kingdom which has its origin in heaven. That's what the kingdom of heaven means. The kingdom centered in heaven. The kingdom of heavenly life and power. The kingdom which creates heavenly people, heavenly minded people. The kingdom which leads people to heaven as their destiny. For the hope of the gospel, Paul says in Colossians 1, is laid up for you in heaven. The kingdom which creates citizens of heaven, whose treasures in heaven, whose affections are in heaven, whose inheritance is in heaven, whose better country is in heaven, whose city is in heaven. That kingdom has now arrived. And that kingdom can in no way be identified with or collapsed into the vaporizing earthly kingdoms. The form of this world, which Paul says is passing away, 
passing away, or the rulers of this age, which he says are coming to nothing. This is the everlasting dominion of the Messiah, and it's now at hand. So in short, as as a piece of shorthand, actually, you could just simply say the end has arrived. Or the eschaton, which is just the Greek word for end or last. That's all the word means. It's shorthand. Right? The end foreseen by the prophets, the messianic era, the coming of the messianic glory, that has now arrived in Jesus. And it turns out we're not ready. And in this text, Israel's not ready in particular. We're not fit for the kingdom in our current natural state. And thus, repentance is needed in order to enter the kingdom of God. A deep conversion. And John preaches a baptism of repentance. Those who are baptized here are professing something. The sermon is shot through with the word. It's the first word out of his mouth, right? Verse 2, repent. And this is what it means for John to be the forerunner. The forerunner spoken of in Isaiah, the one who in verse 3 prepares the way of the Lord and makes straight his paths. And you get this language in the prophet of valleys have to be lifted up and hills have to be leveled. There's a certain sense in which that has to happen in our souls. We have to be restructured for the kingdom to take root. Because now in our fallen estate, right, we're not natural soil for the kingdom. But ultimately, the whole creation has to be restructured. That's what the prophet means when he says valleys have to be lifted up and mountains have to be leveled. The creation itself has to be structurally reordered for the kingdom to come. And so John is dressed in the garb of the Old Testament prophets. He's summoning to repentance and those who are responding to his preaching. And he, had, he, had, he generated quite a, a following for a while. I mean, you read the New Testament carefully and you can see there's a, there's a window there where people are not sure if this guy's the Messiah or Jesus is the Messiah. Those who respond to him come, verse 6 says, confessing their sins. And you remember Jesus had the highest praise for John, right? Concerning John, he says, this is in Matthew 11, he says, John is Elijah. There's this great expectation that Elijah would reappear. Why do the scribes say Elijah must come first? And Jesus says, well, if you can bear it, he is Elijah who God promised to send before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So John's appearance means that day has dawned, the great and dreadful day. And this tells us that the gospel is an eschatological gospel. It's about the day. Now, I've already given a brief definition. It just means things pertaining to the end. But we'll unpack it as we look at the sermon. Beginning of verse 7, you can see the sermon John preaches. Now, it's striking. I don't think anyone would want this sermon preached at their baptism or their child's baptism. It's striking how confrontational he is. He calls those among the religious leaders, especially who are coming out to be baptized, a brood of vipers, like a bunch of snakes. And then he asks them this question. Who, this is, this is not a question asked in our baptismal vows, but it's implied, actually. Who warns you to flee from the wrath which is to come? 
So, again, John's baptism is about what? It's about the end. It's about fleeing the wrath which is to come. He tells them in verse 9, don't rest in your Jewish ethnicity. Don't say to yourselves, we're the children of Abraham. Because God can raise up children to, to Abraham from, from out of these stones. Right? You, you can't rest in your standing in the covenant. You can't trust in that connection. You must listen to the sermon out of my mouth. Or you'll be cut off, he tells them. It's audacious. It's profoundly offensive. Remember, the people who, you have to go out to this baptism. Like John's not knocking on your door. You're going out into the wilderness of Judea. You're finding him by the river. You're confessing your sins. And then he starts calling you names. It's a word from the future. Flee from the coming wrath. You might call that the opening sentence of New Testament theology. The first words in the new era. John's on the cusp of both eras, sort of, right? And he says in verse 10 to them, and this has always gripped me. It's startling. He says, the axe is already laid to the root of the trees. And every tree which doesn't bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, this is really hard for us to grasp. But please, get this much. Jesus has not even begun his earthly public ministry. And John says, he's ready with his axe to administer the final judgment. The end is already at hand. It's so counterintuitive. Because we always want to shove the end out to the end of our linear sequence of moments. But John takes that end and he just brings it right up front. I mean, why would Jesus be ready to administer the final judgment? He hasn't even been baptized yet. He hasn't even begun his public ministry yet. John's whole sermon testifies at least to this much. That in the appearance of Jesus Christ, we are confronted with the last things. The end itself. The end never remains out there. It breaks into the present moment. It's like a jolt. Remember we said Advent is a jolt. The head of the church year is a jolt. The head of the New Testament is a jolt. So the axe is already laid to the root of the trees. John says, an eternal fire awaits the fruitless. And the one who comes after me, he's going to baptize you with the spirit and fire. And whatever that means... It means that John envisions the baptism that Jesus will administer as a purging, fiery baptism. It's some sort of a, a judgment ordeal that you have to go through to get on the other side. So Jesus has then said, this is verse 12. John's not done with this imagery, right? He's, he's ready with his winnowing fan to clear the threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, and to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Again, he's not even begun his public ministry. So this is fire and brimstone preaching. Right? You can imagine people thinking, what kind of an introduction to Israel of the Messiah is this? And it's given to these people, they're coming to be baptized. They're confessing their sins as they come. The text says. 
So John the Baptist, whatever we want to say about him, he sees the coming of the kingdom in Jesus as the coming of the final judgment. So when Jesus ushers in his kingdom, right, he is bringing the final judgment of the last day forward into history. And indeed, that fiery day now is at hand. This should be disturbing to us. This is what we mean when we call the gospel an eschatological gospel. I mean, there's a lot of texts that we could do this from, but when you do it with John the Baptist's ministry, you're doing it with the guy who's at the fountainhead of the New Testament. This quality of the gospel, then, namely that it's an invasion of the end, cannot be cordoned off. It can't be safely separated from some other thing allegedly called the rest of the gospel, as if we could have a part of the gospel which is not about the end, and then another part that is about the end. Right? John's, John's whole life and ministry testifies that the whole gospel is about the end. Every nook and cranny, every crevice of it is eschatological. I often use this illustration, many of you have heard it before, but if the Christian faith was like a glass of water, if that was Christian theology, eschatology would be like a dye that you shoot in the water. Right? It goes everywhere. Now, here, let me give you a few synonyms. I hope this will help. If you don't like the word eschatology, fine, throw it away. Use these words, like the resurrection order, right? The order of the age to come, or heaven, or the new creation, or the new heavens and the new earth, right? They're all synonyms, roughly, with the word end or eschatology. This is why Paul calls Jesus the eschatos adam. The last man, the eschatological man. So that's the sermon. That's John's sermon at Jesus' baptism. By the way, his baptism is his ordination. So that's basically an ordination into the ministry sermon from John to Jesus. And it's, it's revealing, I think, right, that when Christian ministers are ordained, often they are charged. In fact, I did it with Justin here just a, a couple months ago. But it's, it's, a, it's a standard practice. You charge them or you preach from 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul charges Timothy to preach the gospel in light of the kingdom and the coming appearance of Jesus Christ. In other words, he says to Timothy, your whole preaching ministry is charged with the electric fire of the eschaton, or it's sub-Christian. So secondly then, the actual sacrament. That's the sermon. There's word and sacrament in this, in this passage, right? Word followed by sacrament. Now, it's a scary sermon, right? It's a really scary sermon. There's no application in it from John to, you know, to, to, to soften it up at the end. Right? It's a, it's, a, it's a terrifying sermon in certain ways. Remember, just to recap, people are going way out of their way to get baptized. They're repenting. They're confessing their sins, and they're being threatened with the eschatological judgment. And they're doing, and it's being done with the most ferocious of language. But something wonderful happens right here. And this is the reason we must proclaim the baptism of Jesus after Advent. The one, the one who's coming, right, who John talks about. The one who will administer the wrath which is to come. 
The one who's holding the axe in his hand and he's got the axe laid to the root of the tree. The one who cuts the tree down and throws it into the fire. The one who already has the winnowing fork in his hand. The one who is ready to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He appears on the scene. And here's another shock, right? He's ready to usher in his eternal kingdom. And how does he appear? Well, he appears remarkably as one of us. Right? Some of you remember this pop song from like 30 years ago, What If God Was One of Us? Just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. That sentiment's not far from the kingdom at all. Where is the one who's going to do what John says is going to happen? Who's going to usher in the end? Well, it turns out he's over there online, waiting, like shuffling along with the unwashed masses and all of his guilty countrymen. He's ready to submit to John's preaching and baptizing ministry. If John's sermon is is shocking, and it is a shocking sermon, then Jesus being in line with all the other guilty Israelites is a shocking thing. And here's what this means. It means he identifies fully with Israel and with us under John's scathing account of the coming judgment. He stands on your side. Right? He fully identifies. The one who is bringing the wrath fully identifies with the ones to whom it is to be administered. Now, The baptism of Jesus still creates problems for us, right? There are questions here. Like, for example, here's one. If it's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and it involves fleeing the fiery wrath which is to come, then why does Jesus submit to it? I mean, this was obviously a scandal for John, right? You heard that in the text. John's like, what are you doing? I need to be baptized by you, and you're coming to be baptized by me. This makes no sense. And our Lord's reply there, it's quite instructive. He says, permit it to be so for now, to fulfill all righteousness. Probably meaning to fulfill all the hopes of the prophets, all the righteousness of the kingdom which is coming. To fulfill God's righteousness, Jesus must identify with us. He must stand with us. Fully and completely. He must be baptized. And by here, by baptism, I mean something like identified with. Our sinfulness and our need. What's beautiful about this is we see that Jesus is not identified with our corruption. Solely at the cross. We're good at seeing that, and we should be, right? On the cross, Jesus is bearing our sins. He's bearing our shame. He's bearing our guilt. He's standing with us. He's substituting. But he's not identified with us solely there. The whole of his life, what our tradition calls his active obedience, the whole of his life is vicarious, meaning it's for us. It's in our place. It's as if we did it. Calvin famously says, from the time he took the form of a servant... That's the time of the incarnation, right? He began to pay the price for your liberation. He lives identified with you. 
He's identified with you and your sin and your need and your defilement and your alienation from his baptism. And even before that, from the moment of his conception. He lives identified with you so that he can die identified for you. There's a church father, an anonymous church father. We don't know the name. But he says this about this text here. He says, even as he fulfilled the righteousness of baptism, he fulfilled the righteousness of being born and growing, of eating and drinking, of sleeping and relaxing. He also fulfilled the righteousness of experiencing temptation, fear, flight, sadness, as well as suffering, death, and resurrection. That is, according to the requirement of the human nature he took upon himself, he fulfilled all these acts of righteousness. That's what we call his active obedience, his obedience from conception to death. And you see that vividly on display when he's on the line with the guilty, condemned sinners at his own baptism. And Jesus called his death, you might recall, his cross, he called that a baptism. And, and it is a baptism deeply linked, deeply locked into this baptism at the River Jordan. Baptism in water for Jesus implies the baptism in blood. And so it's important to see this. The whole life of Christ is a baptism into our corruption to heal us, to restore us. He undergoes this baptism for you. And then you are subsequently baptized into the baptized one. Even at your baptism, Jesus is before you and underneath you. We could, we could baptize an infant and say, you are now being baptized into one who was baptized for you. You're being baptized into the baptized one. Listen to these startling words. Again, this is Calvin on this, on this event. He's talking about the baptism of Jesus here. And again, I think this is interesting. He uses language, which I don't think we're comfortable using. But he says this. He dedicated and sanctified baptism by his own body that he might have it in common with us as the firmest bond of the union and fellowship he has deigned to form with us. You talk about a high view of the baptism of Jesus. In, the, in, in his baptism, Calvin is saying, he is sanctifying baptism in his own body that he might have it in common with you and in common with you as the firmest bond of union and communion and fellowship which he has deigned, he has stooped down to form with us. So here in this text, Jesus is saying, they need cleansing. I'll stand with them and I'll purify them. Baptize me in their place. Right? They're confessing their sins. I will be, as Isaiah says, numbered, counted with the transgressors. Let their sins be confessed on my head. That's what he's saying when he gets up to the water. Let all the sins of all these people who have been confessing their sin in line, John, let them all be put on my head. Long before the cross, he's entering into that passion. The wrath which is to come the axe which cuts down the unfruitful trees, the unquenchable fire which burns the chaff, all these Jesus the righteous judge takes upon his own head. 
What a vivid picture of the gospel this is. Here the judge declares he will be the one judged. No eschaton. No gospel. The gospel is about satisfying eschatological judgment. And avoiding eschatological wrath. And bringing people to an eschatological glory. You get some other kind of gospel if you tear the eschaton out. Without that sermon of John's, this baptism loses its fire. But with it, we see the full splendor of the gospel. This is the righteousness Jesus fulfilled for you in his whole life. And it becomes yours. It's, it's, you're clothed with this righteousness by faith in the gospel. And then next in the text, there's these familiar and dramatic events. They're in verses 16 and 17. Jesus is baptized. The heavens are torn. The spirit descends like a dove. Now, if we had time, we could see how this makes him the new Noah and the new Moses and the new Israel. But I'm just going to focus on one thing here. The father declares, you are my son, whom I love and with whom I'm well pleased. When the spirit descends as a dove, you should think the spirit hovering dove-like over the original creation. Did you notice the Old Testament lesson was Genesis 1, verses 1 through 5? I didn't pick that, right? That's in the lectionary. Because the church historically understands that the baptism of Jesus is the inauguration of the new creation. He's the new Adam, right? He brings the new creation. The eschatological era of glory and resurrection. So this simple, dramatic descent of the Spirit onto the Messiah sets him forth as the new Adam. The bringer of the new creation. Which again, in my parlance, new creation and eschatological order, they're just synonyms. So, finally note this. And this is not an afterthought. The baptism is fully Trinitarian, right? Everyone sees that, I think. The Father speaks, the Spirit descends, the Son is baptized. The reason we baptize you or your children or professing believers into the triune name has its roots right here. This is often missed by Christians. They think, well, I don't know, Matthew says we should baptize in the name of the Trinity, so let's baptize in the name of the Trinity. But our baptism recedes back to his baptism where the Trinity reveals itself. So the goal of this gospel, this eschatological gospel, the reason Jesus came, the reason he's baptized in water and in blood is to bring people to God. Right? That's it. First Peter. He, he, the just, died for the unjust to bring us to God. Meaning to bring a people into glorious face-to-face, intimate, joyful communion with and worship of the triune God forever. That's why Jesus came. That's why he was baptized. And you're baptized into the threefold name. right? The threefold name because the kingdom, which comes from heaven, right? The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom which comes from heaven leads us to heaven. And the heart of heaven is the glory of the tri-personal God. So the Holy Trinity is the source and the goal of Christian eschatology. Because it's the source and goal of Christian hope. 
and thus the source and the goal of Christian existence, right? Christianity begins with the Holy Trinity, it ends with the Holy Trinity, and it's shot through with the Holy Trinity. Because it's about God. From Him, through Him, and unto Him are all things. So it's indeed fitting that this event is placed right immediately after the Advent cycle. Right? We just came through Advent and Christmas. And then you get this, the opening of Jesus' public ministry. And we're reminded here then that Jesus, who humbled himself, he humbled himself to take on our humanity in the incarnation. What the baptism of Jesus tells you after Christmas is this, that he has not yet reached the depths of his humiliation. His descent does not terminate with Christmas. Rather, he continues throughout his whole public ministry to descend, to empty himself, to stand with us, to bear our uncleanness, to identify with us in all of our need. This is the whole sermon in one sentence. The Jesus, the incarnate judge, the wielder of the axe, the one who baptizes with fire, is unreservedly and forever on your side. And that's the best news you can get. This baptism and his subsequent baptism, his agonizing baptism in blood at Calvary, this turns the judgment ordeal which John the Baptist spoke of, right? The judgment ordeal which we all face. It turns that into the blessed and healing waters of Christian baptism. That's what this baptism does. And this is good news. When Jesus baptizes us into his baptism, then by faith we are united with the one who, as verse 11 in our text says, is well-pleasing to his Father in heaven. And you know what that means? That means as such, and only as such, we are well-pleasing to the Father in heaven. We are fully accepted in the Beloved. The text starts with the fiery coming judgment. It ends with this glorious depiction of the gospel, whereby we who are guilty, we who are unworthy, we who are unclean, are clothed in righteousness and fully accepted in the beloved, fit for communion with the triune God. Praise be to God for the baptism of our Lord. Amen. Amen.